I think sometimes people get too focused up on, you know, I have $20,000. I need to make the maximum return on investment. What's the best way? And then they spend so much time figuring out, should I buy, you know, a cheap $20,000 duplex or should I use this for down payment on three different houses? Should I invest it as a private money lender? Like all these different things. And it just ends up stalling them instead of just taking action and getting a deal that, you know, even if it's just an okay deal, like, That's good. That's great. You bought your first property. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start. And most of the education out there is just complete trash. And you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Brenneman Blueprint. Real excited for today's episode. I have Ashley Kerr on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. Great. Yeah, Ashley, she's a real estate investor and now author, uh, co-host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie podcast. Uh, so real excited to have her on. So I think what um, you haven't had anybody on who's wrote in a book yet, so definitely want to get into that. Um well, let's just start out. I mean, how did you get going in real estate investing? And let's just take it from there. Yeah, sure. So I actually graduated college um, with the intent to be an accountant. And I started working at a CPA firm and I hated it. I hated sitting at a desk all day. So I quit and I became a property manager of a 40 unit apartment complex. I had no knowledge at all um, about what to do, but it was a family friend and He wanted me to help him out. So I started part-time and it was flexible. I could work from home. And that was kind of my first taste of real estate investing. And from there, I just watched what he was doing and it made me want to do the same. Nice. And that was, that's like a W2 type job. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. One of the um, deals we have in Phoenix, we, our property manager, he used to work at uh, Intel, and it was kind of a similar thing where he realized he didn't really want to be uh, manufacturing chips for the rest of his life, and he just made a total pivot to uh, mm-hmm. uh, property management. And it's his first first year, uh, so shout out to Austin there, but um, he's doing really well. But yeah, that's interesting. So then, um, I mean, property management most people don't uh, don't really like that. You know, you're just the complaint department. So how did that go for you? Oh, yeah, there's definitely, you know, late nights in the office crying, wanting to pull my hair out for sure. Um, but um, I guess I didn't really know what property management was when I started it. I knew you collected the rent and you paid the bills for the property. Um, you rented out the apartments, but I had no idea like what else was involved as to, you know, the communication with residents, you know, tenant disputes, uh, you know, maintenance problems, getting those kind of things solved. So it was definitely a learning experience for me. And um, when I started out, I really didn't have anyone to kind of lean on. The person who was doing it before me was kind of scorned that they weren't in that position anymore. 
And so I couldn't really rely on them for information. So I actually went to some like housing authority organizations in our area and I signed up for like $10 landlord classes and, you know, studied up on what the laws and regulations were. Interesting. And what the person that you worked for, who was the the owner, what was, what were they like? So he was a family friend. I actually grew up with his daughter and he just had bought these investments, not knowing really anything about them because, um, his brother had done that. And so his, um, brother's property manager had taken care of them. So he had, he was completely hands off, had no idea what was going on. So he just let me run with it. Oh, nice. That's interesting. Yeah. I sometimes joke like about, uh, so passive investing, you know, it's not, um, it's not passive for, um, for, for everybody. Like someone has to actually be doing the work. So that guy figured out how to, um, turn it into being actually a passive investment by not, uh, not micromanaging you and letting you run with it. So, yeah. And, uh, it probably cost them some money at first. I'm a big learning curve for me. I'm sure somebody else who knew what they were doing could have done it more cost effective. But the thing was I was loyal and I still do asset management to him this day. And so um, then I've helped him along the way with what I've learned. And sometimes we joke now that, you know, he relies on me more than I do on him as a mentor. So just the, the funny how things can do a 180. Yeah, no kidding. And so at this point, what's what sort of things is he coming to you for? So um, a lot of his financing as to like, here's what I want to do. Like, where can I find money? And, you know, it's me looking nice. at his portfolio. It's like, okay, maybe finance this thing. You can pull cash from here, things like that. And then also acquiring new investments has me still continue to do like the deal analysis as to what's going to be a great, good investment for him. Well, that's an interesting transition where you to just go from property manager to starting to do deals. Like what kind of what was the next step? So you managed these properties for how long? What was kind of your first move? Yeah. So it was a year and a half um, until I bought my first duplex and I actually bought it with his son. So I had grown up with him, you know, when we were younger and I was just like, look at what your dad is doing. We should do that. So he had a bunch of savings and we used his savings to buy our first duplex. And then I was kind of the hands-on. I, you know, did the acquisition of it. I found the deal and I was the property manager for the, our first unit. Nice. Yeah, that's really, I mean, it seems like most people, I mean, to get started, you need to do, um, you know, some sort of partnership or, you know, just do it the slow way and save up and get the skills. And uh, that's, I'm not surprised to hear that where um, I'm sure it was a lot easier to get the loan with that, uh, with him involved. And then he had the down payment and you had the expertise uh, and and the motivation seemingly to kind of get him going with it. Yeah, we actually did. We bought it all cash because we didn't even realize that you could buy a property, an investment property through the bank because we watched what his dad was doing. And his dad was always making cash offers and buying in cash or he was going and refinancing another property and using that cash from the cash out refinance to purchase the next one. So we didn't even know at that point you could go to a bank and do it. So interesting. um, Very limited mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what, what part of the country was this in? This was outside of Buffalo, New York. Okay, so it's nice. right where his dad had investments. So I knew the market well, knew what rents were going for, what people were looking for in apartments. Um, so that's why we decided to go there since it was familiar to us. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's a great tip where, um, I had, I just put out an episode about doing your first deal and that was one of my 
tips is just to, you got to keep everything super simple on your first deal. So don't, you know, my, it was in terms of location, like buy somewhere that, you know, um, like you can find a good deal really in any market where I don't think, um, probably most people would have like Buffalo on like the top of their list for just, you know, the investment market there, but you can still find good deals and, uh, anywhere. And you know, the area better if you've been living there, uh, you know, basically your whole life. So like, uh, like you should rely on that expertise. Yeah, I 100% agree. Just like that first investment propels you onto the next ones. And I think sometimes people get too focused up on, you know, I have $20,000. I need to make the maximum return on investment. What's the best way? And then they spend so much time figuring out, should I buy, you know, a cheap $20,000 duplex or should I use this for down payment on three different houses? Should I invest it as a private money lender? Like all these different things. And it just ends up stalling them instead of just taking action and getting a deal that, you know, even if it's just an okay deal, like that's good. That's great. You bought your first property. And I think yeah. sometimes people forget that, you know, buying that first deal, it's not just cash flow. Like you're getting appreciation, you're getting mortgage paid on. Like there's other ways that you're buying fitting off a property too. Um, the tax advantages of it. Yeah, that's spot on. I think in that episode I was I explained like you need to have some money and credit and then from there you just need to buy a deal. Like I kept saying that over and over because you like you, you can read all these books and, uh, you know, podcasts are awesome. Like I definitely recommend those, but you, you can get into just too much, uh, education mode where, uh, you know, I, I read a few books before getting started. So I had like the basics down because obviously you'd have to have some idea how these things are valued or how it all works. But, I like I knew nothing when I was buying my first deal compared to what I knew after buying a few deals. And uh, then after, you know, buying like 40 deals or whatever number I'd be on now, like I, I knew nothing on the third deal, you know, like I yeah. um, it's, it's wild how much you actually learn by doing. So I think that's, um, that's really good advice. What, what other advice would you have for uh, people who want to um, get going and buying their first rental is make offers too it's so easy to get stuck in that analysis paralysis where you're, you know, using the asking price on a property. And that doesn't mean that's the purchase price. Don't be afraid to submit low ball offers, like figure out what's the purchase price that works for you and make an offer on that. You never know what somebody's motivation or reasoning is for selling. And if they say no, okay, no, then right. <laughs> move on to the next deal. Um, you know, when I was younger, my mom always used to say the saying, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And like, I feel like nowadays that's not applicable to a lot of things, but in real estate, when you are putting in a lowball offer, that is applicable. No from a seller is not going to hurt you and you can move on to the next yeah. one. Even say, hey, you know what? Just follow up with me, you know, if it doesn't sell or follow up with them in a couple months if you still see that it's listed. Yeah, nothing ventured, nothing gained where, you know, you got these. Uh, oh, you're, you're definitely right where I've, I've, I mean, one, like I've bought deals where I'm surprised that they've, countered me where I'm like, it works here. And the broker's like, just throw it in. And I, I thought they were just trying to get some activity on it and you end up buying it, like surprising <laughs> yourself. Um, and that just, they knew the price was high and they just didn't want to officially reduce it, you know, but they yeah, kind of, I waited out two years. I think it was on one property of four unit. It was originally listed at 90,000 and I ended up getting it for 20,000 just by being patient. And it was two years later. <laughs> wow. What, yeah, I was going to ask too, what's, what were like the, what was the size of the first deal that you bought? Um, it was a duplex. So it was about, I think $72,000 duplex. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And that's one thing that was nice about, 
uh, the part of the country you're in where they have like a, uh, accessible starting point at least, um, you know, or some of these places, it, it is like a little harder if you're in with some of these like really big cities where stuff's so expensive. Um, but there's so many programs out there, um, to put, uh, you know, a little money down, um, that you can still get into a place if you own or occupy. So, um, anyways, but let's, you should be given the tips here. So what, what other, um, <laughs> What other advice would you have? So, okay, you just need to start and then mm-hmm. and then make offers. What else? Yeah, I, I think onto your point right there, to, you know, kind of mentioning house hacking right there. I think that is a great way to stay, to start if you're able to. Um, by that time, I had already built my house when I started investing in real estate. So I uh, that's kind of out the window for me, uh, house hacking. But um, if you have like the opportunity to do that, um, I think that is just such a great way to get started. You get familiar with managing tenants. Um, you get familiar with owning a property and the rehab and maintenance in it. Plus, you get to live for free or very low money. And I think um, one thing is to make sure you don't get caught up when you're analyzing the deal that, oh, I'm not going to be you know, living for free. I'm going to have to pay $200 for my mortgage. This is a bad deal. Well, if you're living in an apartment that would rent for $1,000 a month and you're only paying $200, that's still a great deal. Um, my sister, when she graduated college, she got a job offer and she was in a, uh, where she got the job. It was a really great neighborhood where I already had one duplex and I really wanted another one, but it was a really hot market at the time. And I would have to, at put 20% down on a property. I just didn't have a private money lender to do an all cash offer. I didn't have the cash and I honestly didn't even have the 20% to put down. So I talked my sister into buying a property there, a duplex where she went and got an FHA loan. She, the problem was she didn't have the money for the down payment for the three and a half percent. I did though. And since we're family members, I could gift her that three and a half percent down So with closing costs and everything, it ended up being about $14,000 I gifted her. In exchange, I became a 50% owner on the deed. So we own the property 50-50. She went and got the FHA mortgage and she is only on the mortgage. I'm not on the mortgage, so it doesn't affect my debt to income. Um, We rented out one unit. She lives in the other unit. She pays $45 a month towards her um, property taxes, insurance, and her mortgage payment. So she gets to live for $45 a month and a apartment that would probably rent for like nine fifty a month. And then, um, it's kind of a long-term play for me for only three and a half percent down. I have, um, equity in this property that is continuously appreciating. And when my sister moves out, I'll get 50% of that cash flow. Yeah, that's no, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, um, I mean, just your, the return on your money, just on the loan pay down and how that'll mm-hmm. go up over time will be a huge yeah. return. So even if there's not a lot of cash flow, so I mean that's uh, uh, that's that's a really great strategy. How did you? Um, and then did you guys take title to the property both on it right away, or you had to yep. transfer it later? Or nope, right away we did it. We were very like open and honest with the bank, like this is what we want to do, and they're like, yeah, that's no problem. She can go on the mortgage. You don't have to. You can be on the deed, and um, she was qualified for the mortgage on her own. Um, so there was no reason for me to actually go on the mortgage. So yeah, it all worked out really well. Nice. Yeah. I've heard of, uh, I had some friends who were, who did that where they partnered up, but they weren't family. So they had, uh, um, they, they bought in one of the guy's names and then they transferred it to an LLC. They're both in later. Um, yeah. but then, so what type of family members, uh, like are permitted to do that? 
Like um, I think it's usually like parents, siblings, maybe aunt and uncle and grandparents, I think it is. Um, I'm not 100% clear on that, but it has to be from like a family member that gifted funds. Yeah. That's interesting. But that's, I mean, that's a pretty wide net potentially. You could buy one with your oh, yeah. mom and yeah. dad, one with your sister, you know, yeah. one with your yeah, my brother, brother-in-law. He, my brother ended up uh, a couple of years later buying a duplex too. And, um, but he had the down payment. So I was pretty disappointed. He didn't ask me to park. Yeah. <laughs> he just, he just used the tips and bought it himself. Then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So then what, um, I guess, so you, that's kind of some of your, your early deals. Maybe walk me through a few more, I guess, kind of, we just jumped right into the tips. But so first one was that duplex. Um, and then the next, the next deal was this FHA one or probably a few in between? No, that was the, yeah, a few down. Um, so at first I just had my one partner and we continuously bought together for like five deals, I would say. And then um, I kind of actually in 2017 is when I found bigger pockets. And that really like in a year and a half, I tripled my portfolio just from being in the forums and learning about like, oh, my God, I can do this. I can do it that way. Things like that. So that's when I got like the courage to like branch off and buy some properties on my own too. And I actually found this um, older investor who wanted to dump his portfolio and he had, I think it was like maybe eight or 10 units. And so I ended up buying some of them at that time and I did some seller financing and then I had gotten a line of credit on one of my rentals that um, my husband had had that was paid off and we got a line of credit on that and used that to um, purchase the rest of the properties. So that was like my first big purchase at once. And some of the properties I put my own name and then some I put with my partner and we kind of broke it up that way. And then he had two properties left. And, um, one was the property that he originally wanted $90,000 for. And it was in a, like a smaller town where there just wasn't really, um, it was on the main street and it was a mixed use building. So two commercial downstairs, two residential upstairs, it was completely vacant except for the two tenants upstairs. And I just didn't know what could go into that building, like what businesses would thrive in there. So it's like, there's no way I can spend $90,000. And then the other building was off of main street, but it was one commercial downstairs and then a residential upstairs. And that just needed some work. And once again, I didn't know what I'd do with the commercial unit. So for two years, I kept in touch with the seller and actually it was his son that I talked to. And, you know, he was just like, you know what? My dad has just got to get rid of these buildings. Like we're good. We'll give you both of them for 60,000. So wow. I went and looked again and the duplex needed a new roof. And so I said, okay, how about 40,000? And they agreed to sell them to me for 40,000. So I really didn't want this other duplex. So I found a buyer and I wholesaled that contract $20,000. So I was getting this four unit now for $20,000 and we spent COVID um, actually worked out nice that it was during COVID because we could spend every day there rehabbing the project. And so we spent $70,000 on the rehab. We did pretty much all the labor ourselves except for electric and some of the plumbing. And then um, once we we got it appraised, we got it rented out and it appraised for $220,000 with $90,000 all in. So that was like a great deal for us, a great win. Uh, And then we went and part of the reason of me purchasing it was that I wanted to open a wine and liquor store in that building. So while we were rehabbing that, we were in the process of getting our liquor license and hiring employees and 
getting that business built out. So today there's a wine and liquor store in that building that we operate too. Nice. That's exciting. So then yeah. your, uh, your first commercial deal then do. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good, uh, that's awesome. What on the, 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 the refi you did when it was appraised at, I think two twenty. Mm-hmm. how, um, did you guys, you did, how much did you end up borrowing on that? We like ended up just, picking out just a hundred thousand. Okay. So we paid ourselves back and then, um, we used the extra 10,000 as just like towards some startup costs for the liquor store. But, nice. um, yeah, we only took it out a hundred. So it cash flows pretty well now with only that, having that hundred thousand dollar debt on it. Yeah. Right. Like a 50% LTV, a little under. Yeah. So that's not too crazy. Usually when people do these, uh, uh, cash out refi deals since they're putting it right up to 80% and, uh, you know, there's no cash flow and the, if some changes a little and it's cash flow negative or. Yeah. And that's like one thing it would have happened to us was if we would have pushed it too much, like though that it appraised that high, like the rents weren't, couldn't support it being, you know, that high either. So, and also we don't really like to over leverage ourselves and we were at a position at a point in our investing where we had access to a lot of capital at the time. So we didn't need to tap into it. Um, I guess we could always probably go and get a, you know, a line of commercial line of credit on it or something like that. But, um, it's, it's nice and it helps us sleep at night that like some of our properties are paid off or like very, you know, low, you know, um, leverage. Yeah. Loan to them, value, right? Yeah. Loan to yeah. Value. No, that makes sense. And then, I mean, times like this where things are pulling back, I mean, then you, you should be really happy you did that versus, mm-hmm. um, levering up and not having like a, you know, like a more challenging situation going on. So, cause yeah, it's important to be able to, you know, stay in the game and, uh, you know, weather the storms when they come and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're finally due for some sort of reset here and it's, you know, started, but, um, that's, no, that's interesting. I haven't heard of a lot of people, um, paying off properties entirely and then using a line of credit. So why don't you walk me through kind of the line of thinking on that? Yeah. So the first time I did that was, um, it was, uh, a old farmhouse. So I live on a dairy farm that my husband had. Um, it was his grandma's house. And so we ended up buying that house and his parents' house. And then we built our own house on the property too. And so there was no debt on the property at all. And, um, we went to the bank and we went to a commercial lender since the farmhouse was now a rental property for us. Once we moved out into our new house, um, we went to a commercial lender to get a commercial line of credit on the property. So at a price for 130,000, we pulled out 108,000 on the line of credit. And we've had that, I think since maybe 2016 ish, um, that line of credit. And we just consistently have used it to buy properties. And then um, the next time I got a commercial line of credit was actually on two duplexes that I had purchased. I had purchased them with private money. I paid the private money off. And then I went and got um, a line of credit on those two properties together. So I had each property appraised for 80,000, I think it was around each of the properties. And so about 160,000, but we only took a line of credit of 100,000 um, on those properties just to once again, be conservative. So we've used that line of credit to fund deals right now. That's funding, um, one of our rehab projects we're doing. Um, so I, I think a lot of people, there's a little misconception that like a line of credit, you can always get only get on your primary residence, but on the commercial side of lending you, there's actually quite a few options as to what you can do too. Yeah. What's the, the term on those, uh, lines of credit? 
Yeah, like so the, they're the variable the interest rates. So like um, the one, the lowest it will go is 6%. Um, that's the floor of it. That's what it was when I opened it. And then um, for the other one, it's uh, right now at 7%. And then do those, you need to renew those every year or how long does, is like the loan term for? Um, so for the one, it is callable at basically any time. Um, so there's no renewal. So not, not that I have to repay everything, but it would turn into an amortization. So that's, they actually just changed it this year where it was, I think like on a three-year term that it would be open for three years, they would review my financials and say if they were going to continue it. And now it's more on like a, almost a month to month term, I guess, where um, they'll give me notice and I'll, you know, what if there is a balance due, will turn into like a 15 year amortization repayment plan. Okay, got it. Well, that's nice that it's not just like uh, due in full like that at the end of a year uh, mm-hmm. or, in, or month to month, because that's, I think some of the ones that I had looked at, that's how it, it worked. And so that was kind of like a a big negative for me where it was like, okay, I'll borrow this money, but then in 11 months they can say, we need you to pay it back. And then it's like, well, I just put it in a deal. Like I don't have it to pay back. Um, that was really my only experience looking into that where I was like, I don't want to be, I'd rather just borrow the money then for, you know, whatever, five or 10 years mm-hmm. and just have it and not deal with that. Um, that potential, like just maturity at the bank's discretion. So, yeah, I did do a hard money, loan this past year and it's my first time using hard money and I actually did it as a line of credit. So it's a one and a half million dollar line of credit where I still have to present them each property. They still have to approve it and then they'll fund me off of that line of credit. It just basically is bypassing where I have to be approved every time for the the loans and kind of speeds up the process. But honestly, it's been awful. I would never, ever do it again, but it's set on the same terms as to like, it's a, a 12 month, um, process. So the date starts the day you close on that one property and then you have 12 months to do it and they do offer extensions and things like that. But also I think it's a lot better because you actually know when that end date is when you close on the property, you know, that the time start, the, you know, the clock starts ticking and it's not like you can use that money for another rehab project right. or anything like that too. So, yeah, that's interesting. I think that, um, yeah, that's a unique strategy. And then I'm sure that saves a lot on closing costs, you know, when you're in, in time where mm-hmm. instead of um, originating a whole new loan again uh, and then waiting for all this time for appraisal and whatnot, you can just draw on your line and get going. So I'm yeah, sure that yeah. that helps because then basically are you, you're making like no financing contingency on your offers then because you know you just have the money. Yeah, with the hard money loan, it was definitely different because we still had to um, do an appraisal, things like that. Like I would not recommend this process to anyone, but like when I use my line of credits from like smaller banks where they don't care where the money is going or what it's doing, like, yeah, so much simpler. It's just, I have the money deposited into my bank account from the line. And then I'm just getting a cashier's check to, or doing a wire transfer to pay for the property. And yeah, it's all, you know, a cash purchase. Yeah. Nice. So then I guess to kind of bring it to present day then like you, um, so you had bought this portfolio, what year was that? And that was like 2020, 2019. That was 2017 actually when I bought that big portfolio. Yeah. So you did all that in like your first year? No, my first year was 2014. So yeah, I bought maybe like five or six properties. And then in 2017, I had bought another like 12 properties or something like that. 
Got it. Yeah, since you had said you found bigger pockets in 2017, so I thought it was all yeah. kind of like real quick. Okay, I bought this yeah, duplex yeah. and I found bigger pockets. Then you bought this portfolio already. And I was like, wow, in a, in a year. Okay. But yeah, that's still <laughs> fast in three or four years. That's awesome. Um, so then what, I guess, what, uh, um, what have the deals looked like since the portfolio? So I've continued to like build my buy and hold. Um, the last couple of years while the market is so hot, I sold a lot of um, the duplexes that I had purchased that were just like $20,000 duplexes, you know, that were such a low entry level to get into for real estate investing. And, you know, but they became headache property properties because, you know, you could rehab them and do stuff, but they were just so old that no matter what, there's always things that were going to come up or they just weren't in a great area or things like that. So in the last two years, I unloaded all of those properties. Like right now, I don't have any property that I want to get rid of. So that worked out great. And I was able to sell pretty much all of them for double what I paid for them. Nice. Plus they had had rental income the whole time I owned them and loan paying down and everything. So um, that really worked out great. Um, great timing, I guess, um, yeah. on that part of it. And then this past year, I purchased a, uh, land. So ranging from three to 30 acre parcels with cabins on them. And so we just finished up an A-frame cabin where we completely went in and redid the whole thing, made it modern, you know, like tile bathrooms, um, you know, brand new kitchen cabinets, uh, butcher block countertops, all these things in it to make it more um, of an experience and just like modernized than you're going into this old dingy cabin that's all dark wood with, you know, old light fixtures. And, you know, the, the bathroom had a camper shower in it, you know, not even a real shower. So doing things like that. So right now we have um, two other properties right now that we're currently in the process of rehabbing. And then are those the the A-frames, those are going to be like short-term rentals or what's the strategy with that? Yeah, yeah. So the A-frame we have up and listed um, for rent right now as a short-term rental. And then the other one is near like a ski resort. So that will be um, a rental, a short-term rental there. And then another property we bought that it's 30 acres. It has two cabins on it. My business partner ended up moving into one of the cabins and he's renovating it while he lives there. So part of the strategy behind that was we're actually going to go and refinance that and do a cash out refinance with him as the owner of the property as his primary residence. So we're going to be, when we purchased this, we got this property under contract last, so it would have been like October of 2021. So right then interest rates were still very low and so by the time we closed on the property, it was like March or April of 2022. And then we've done all the rehab and everything like that. And now the, with interest rates rising, you know, our, you know, our investment just isn't going to be that great anymore. So we've completely pivoted where in August we saw some of the, you know, we kind of went through this and we're like, okay, this is our best situation. So he moved into the property is living in one cabin we're going to refinance it as his primary residence. We're going to get actually a really great interest rate on it. Um, he's also a military veteran. So the property taxes will get a huge discount on those. Right now, they're about $9,000 a year. So with him having it as his primary residence, we'll be able to get a, a discount with his a VA discount on that too. 
And then the other cabin, we're in the middle of renovating that one, and it's going to act partly as our office, but also as a short-term rental too. We'll draw income off of that. And then we have the 30 acres where there's unlimited potential there. Um, my business partner really wants to put like a glamping tent there and do that as a short-term rental. Um, we can log some of the trees there and stuff like that. But yeah. Wow. Yeah, you're not afraid to try something. So there's yeah. a lot of, <laughs> that's all. That's awesome. Yeah. A lot of different strategies. So, uh, that's exciting. Yeah. So what do you, um, then the, the, the Airbnb, uh, short-term rental, how did you, uh, kind of get into that idea? I mean, just from bigger pockets, seeing other people doing it and saw the opportunity or. In 2018, I actually rented one of the apartments in that 40 unit apartment complex I'd been managing and I turned it into a short-term rental. So I was renting it and then rented it out on uh, Airbnb. And it actually did really well. And it's done really well. We've had, even during COVID, we only had one month where we didn't have anybody in it. And that was happened to be the month that Airbnb was paying you like 30% of whatever you would have made that month or something like that. So we still made money. Um, so like that's been a really great like cash cow for us. So I just decided like I love to own property rather than rent it from somebody else. So um, I've built a good, strong foundation of long-term buy and holds and I wanted to do something fun and different and a little bit more passionate than just like boring buy and holds. And yeah. so I figured it would be like an okay time. Like I've, you know, I've got a good foundation. If I completely mess this up, like it's okay. I still have this business and so that's what kind of made me want to do that is try it out. And plus my co-host, Tony Robinson, has been a great resource to me, him and his wife, as to like things I should and shouldn't do. And so kind of taking advantage of that opportunity of the people in my network to kind of learn and go from. So yeah, it's nice. been good. And then we opened up another Airbnb arbitrage in that same apartment complex, but we're doing it as a medium term rental. So we have a traveling nurse in there right now, too. Great. And then you're, and so you as the, uh, like you, you're the owner though, of that building. And so you, then you just are targeting or are you just nope, signed that the lease was, on um, it? that the first, uh, investor that I started working for, he owns that building. So oh. I just rent from him. Yeah. Got it. Nice. Yeah. 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 We have a few of those in our portfolio. Um, especially with our Phoenix properties, like that's really a big travel market and, uh, same thing with I'm I'm in Chicago, so I haven't tried to do that ourselves. It seemed like way too much to manage, but um, yeah. yeah, they're having a good go of it. It seems like so, but no, that's cool and that's a nice passion project. I know last time I was in uh, Phoenix, my girlfriend was saying the same thing. Like, why don't we? We are an Airbnb. Why don't we get a house like this and do it? And then we this would be like maybe we would uh, make no money on it, but we could have a free place to to be. To you stay, know, when yeah. we're here, your own place. So. I just figure yeah. everyone will kind of like ruin everything and it'll be like frustrating. If you want to, <laughs> if you want to use it, you have to like move all your stuff out. Um, and then, and then you come back and the wall's all marked up and you're, um, I figured you'd, it's, it would be a uh, frustrating if you try to use it as like your like main vacation place. So a lot of like the ski resort that's near us, a lot of the short-term rentals there, they lock the master suite. 
So like you still have your own bed, you have your own closet, things like that. And then like anything else that's personal, they just put into that master suite. So people are just renting the house with the three regular bedrooms and not getting the master suite access. So I've seen that before where they like lock off a bedroom or something where that things are in it. And as far as like the damage when um, for the short-term rental arbitrage, that apartment I've had since 2018, it is in better condition and we've done nothing to it since renting it out in 2018. It is better condition than other apartments of people who have only lived there one or two years because we are continuously cleaning it. Every time there's a turnover, it's scrubbed down. If there's something that's like about to break or things like that, you know, we have maintenance go in and fix it. So we've actually seen that our property is better taken care of than That's having surprising. a long-term tenant tenant in place. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so for the air, the, uh, short-term rentals you manage those yourself as well. Yeah. So that? up until, yeah, just recently I hired somebody to kind of build out operations because I just had that one for so long and it was just me and the cleaner. She would, um, her or I, whoever was available would respond to a message. She would just look at the calendar and go and clean it when necessary. Message me when I had to reimburse her for supplies or things like that. And, um, it was very easy going. And now that I'm kind of like building up a couple more, decided to put some operations in place. So I hired somebody to do all the research for me. So we, figured out what software we needed. We went with hospitable, we got remote locks. So we have um, keyless entry and she's kind of implemented all of that for us. And now she's going to be handling all the bookings, the communication, things like that. Nice. And then do you manage your own uh, just like long-term rentals too, or who does that? No, I actually hired a third-party property management company in 2020, but um, their contract expires in about two months and we're actually going to take our properties back. And, but last time I was the property manager and this time I'm, I just hired somebody who's going to act as the property manager and I'm just going to kind of build out a team where I just oversee things hopefully and not involved with any of the day to day. How many, how many units do you have then to make that? Um, work? I have about 30 units. Yeah. And but also the other investor that I work for, he relies heavily on me as to what to do for his units. So when I gave up property management, he put his portfolio with the same property management company too. And now he's going to have me take back his properties too. Got it. How many units is that roughly? So altogether, he has two 40 unit apartment complexes and then there's about another 10 to 12 commercial properties. So we'll have about 120 units altogether. Okay, nice. Yeah, because I've I've had uh, I've got done uh, property management every possible way where I've third partied it. We've done it ourselves. Yeah. I brought it back in house. Then I've third partied it again, and then I, um, yeah, it seems like you need to be. Um, I guess I'm not sure how big of a team you're going to hire, or what their all roles are, but you need to have a a pretty big portfolio to make that all work. Yeah, so. and so last time. Um, when I worked for this other investor was, I was, you know, a W2 employee for him as the property manager. And then we, his daughter did part-time admin stuff, like entering payables, things like that. And then we would go back and forth as to, you know, whether we had a handyman on payroll or we just like had vendors come in and contractors. So, um, we've done it a bunch of different ways too. And, but now it's just, it is the, we've looked at, you know, what we paid out to this third party property management company. And it definitely makes sense for us to keep it in house. And one thing is just 
cost control, even what we're going to be saving. You know, I made the mistake when I gave stuff up to the property management company. I didn't realize that I had to be an asset manager still. I thought, woohoo, I'm free. I'm a passive investor. And no, that wasn't the case. When a water bill goes to this property management company, it's going to their buildings department, the payables, and they're just paying the bill. They're not looking at, wow, that, I remember that being $200 last month. Why is it $500? They're just paying it. And it's, you know, me having to go through everything each month and just saying like, wait, is there a water leak? Is there a toilet running? Why is this water bill so high? So just like things like that, that we're going to be able to control a lot more being in the house. Yeah. I th- yeah. And then you can train your people to what, uh, well, let's not just pay the bill. Let's think about it. We can compare exactly. it to the other buildings we own that are just like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've on the deals we self-manage still like that. Uh, I've been in that exact scenario where I have uh, these same of these 16 units in Chicago and they're like all the exact same um, in this one neighborhood uh, in Wicker Park. And they we had a water bill that was like double at one of the buildings and just jumped out. And it's like, what's happening here? Yeah. And but it still takes like that owner mentality. So it's like uh, it's going to it's it's tough to train that. Um but you're definitely right about having to be an asset manager where, yeah, you need to manage your managers and then um, you have to check in a lot with them. Otherwise, then um, like they need to see you're like on top of them sort of to get like the best results. So it's still a lot of work uh, hiring out the management. So you're definitely right about that. Yeah. And that's how I found my newest uh, business partner, actually, too, is he worked construction and I was like really struggling with overseeing the maintenance and the turnovers through this property management company. Like I just felt like things weren't being handled well, but I just didn't have the time to like nitpick through all the maintenance requests that they were getting in, you know, what they were charging for maintenance, what was actually being done. And like the turnovers, like building out the scope of works and going through that, like, does this actually need to be done? Is this great price? Things like that. And, and like keeping track of the time frame of turnovers too. Like some turnovers were taking two months and it's like, this should not be taking this long. And yeah. So I, he worked construction and just like would talk about all the time about how he hated his job and things like that. And we got to become friends and he was laid off in the winter. So I was like, here, try this. This is do this for me. And he did it for free for like three months. And then when it came time to go back to his construction job, we're like, I think you should stay here working and doing this. And then we ended up partnering on some deals together to make it more feasible for him to quit his job. And um, so, yeah, he's taken a lot of that off my plate. So now he's kind of in charge of building out that maintenance side of things. Yeah, that's that's awesome that you want to. can blow your mind for a second then. And the turnovers in Chicago, what's normal is they, they do them in, in one day. Yeah. Uh, like there's no vacancy here really. So like, um, let's say if someone's lease is ending at the end of uh, April, they'll ask them in like February, if they're going to stay or not get an answer. And if they're moving out, they'll get it rented for May 1st, um, in April or March while people are living there. And then they do a zero day turn. Like you move out at noon and they show up with the the painters and the repair people and uh, the cleaners after, and it's ready for the next, um, next morning. That's one of the reason that I ended up third party in so many of the deals here where I had a a couple hundred units and like the July 1st, uh, there's no exaggeration. We'd have like 50 turnovers. And I'm like, this is like a, an army of people (laughs) like that are needed. Because also it's really seasonal here and I'd imagine it is with the weather uh, up by you, but it's um, you want to have all your leases end in April through 
September, right. ideally yeah. even May through August. So we have like so many ending and it was always, um, so yeah, so our turnovers, uh, they've, you know, sometimes I feel like they fall short too, but it's, there's the timelines are crazy where, you know, if you don't have all the paint with you, like the paint store might be closed, like you're oh, yeah. painting it at, on a Saturday night. So, um, but yeah, that is, I mean, that is crazy. I, when I used to do it, like we would do it in like a couple of days, you know, and yeah. do it and like give ourselves that time. But like yeah, two months is like way too long and kind of like the excuse has been, they haven't had the manpower, things like that. And, um, so like, that's a big reason why we're, why we're transitioning. And we've asked them so many times as to, they're not even showing the apartment or listing the apartment until the person has already moved out. Yeah. The unit. So right there is like a huge like waste of time. Like it is written in the lease agreements that upon notice of moving out, like the tenant has to allow showings for a new prospective tenant to come into the property and things like that. And I'm sure most of the tenants are willing to do that and don't care. They just don't even ask or, you know, even bring it up. It's just more convenient and easier for them to wait till the person's moved out. Then they change the locks scope the turnover, send an estimate to do the turnover, things like that. And yeah, so this is way just, too slow. I would do things a lot differently. <laughs> I mean, yeah, your vacancy rate's going to be like, oh, you know, 15% a year then the way this and, is. Yeah, yeah. And that's why like, I, it's going to be affordable for us to hire this in-house because there's so many different ways that we're going to be saving than what we have in the past couple of years too. Yeah. Well, hopefully you just implement what, what you, what you want for that. Cause I mean, that's how yeah. everybody's doing it here. So it's definitely doable. Just contact them two, three months before expiration. It's hard you know, get an answer out of them and then get, uh, get stuff scheduled and get showing. So, yeah. Yeah. I, see, that, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause it's just like more motivating me now to like, make sure that happens now to do those zero day or one day turnovers. Yeah. And where I went to college was the same. I went to a college at UW Madison in Wisconsin mm -hmm. and the whole city turn moves out on, uh, August 14th and then moves mm -hmm. into a new place on August 15th. It's crazy. <laughs> like you, it's, you can't find any workers. Um, and on the rentals I had there, I just ended up doing half the stuff myself. Cause by the time you find a, it was so much work to find somebody to do a repair. I could just have done it with my dad by then. Um, right, right, yeah. so we, we ended up doing that for a lot of the turnovers. Um, yeah. so yeah, that's, that's pretty common in a lot of places, but yeah, it's not their money. So, you know, they're only going to, uh, try so hard. It's right. Yeah. Seems, so. And I, I ended up the last couple like turnovers I've hired, a another investor actually, who's a contractor to come and do it. And like I had a house, a duplex that was completely trashed. I mean, it needed new flooring, new paint, like plumbing repairs, all these things. And they did both units in that duplex in three weeks. And we can't even get them to do like a simple turnover in three weeks. So well, that's yeah, that's what I was thinking when you were saying it's taking two months on our renovation deals where we we were doing uh installing in unit laundry and replacing everything uh basically mm -hmm. in uh in four weeks. So yeah. like like <laughs> that and and we were trying to figure out how we can do it faster. So yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> But that, yeah. So no, that makes sense why you're bringing that in house. Um, well, nice. Well, yeah, I'm, I want to hear about the book. So maybe let's just jump to that and then, uh, then wrap up. So why'd you decide to write a, a book? That's, uh, that's exciting. Yeah. I definitely never thought that I would be writing a book just like I never thought I'd be a podcast host or a real estate investor, I guess. But, uh, um, part of being on bigger pockets is there's lots of opportunities there. So being a podcast host, I guess, comes along with publishing a book. So 
I pitched the idea of just like a rookie book on how to get started in real estate investing. And so what I did was kind of map out a blueprint or like steps you can take, like do these things in this order and here's some different things. So like, you know, one of the steps is getting your financing in place. Here's all the different types of financing that are available to you or where to find out more information on them. And also like, you know, how to analyze a market, how to analyze a deal and the steps that you should do, what you should focus on, what you really don't need to focus on. And then it's kind of built out to get your first deal in 90 days, or at least to be very comfortable and confident making offers, you know, within 90 days to get your first deal. And I think it's also a great book for, even if you have your first deal, second deal, if you feel stuck as to kind of help you refocus and like get inspired again and get ideas as to how you can get that third deal or that next deal too. Yeah, that's, that's a great idea. And in terms of, um, I'm excited to check it out. I think the, um, you know, like a lot of these real estate investing books, they're 300 pages or something. And it seems so complicated, but just getting started, you just, you need to know like the basics. And like you're saying, then you need to get actually going. So you don't need a 300 page book necessarily. So well, um, and I think it is like 300 pages. It's like so, 268 maybe. I yeah. don't know. But, um, it's, yeah. um, but there's, I include a lot of like my worksheets or my processes in there, you know, there's checklists and all yeah. these different diagrams and graphs and like basically, you know, Google sheets and stuff I use in my business. We just copy and paste it and put into the book too, as you can use for 10 uh, templates too. Nice. Yeah. I saw the length on Amazon. I just figured it was not all like just straight text, like some of these things where you don't, uh, you're not going to get into some of like a discounted cash flow analysis in the back and uh, explain what's uh, why you might need that in the future. Yeah, you yeah. know, you don't, if you, you don't need that you, right away, you need to just get, get going. Yeah. So it's very rookie. It's like, here's what you need to know. Like here and like all the information in that book, you can talk to other investors and get that information. You can read it online. You can listen to podcasts. All I tried to do was take like from my own experience, what worked for me, but also like put it into like order. Cause like, I just feel like there's so much stuff being thrown at you as a new investor is like, you don't know what thing to do first or what to do next yeah, or things like that. So that's what I try to do is condense what you need to know and like help you just focus on this, follow this plan and do that to get your first deal. Yeah, that's spot on where I think I forgot who it was, but they were asking me like what kind of trust to put in an LLC. Um, mm-hmm. And they didn't have any deals yet. And I was like, I feel like, yeah. I feel like <laughs> this is like a little advanced right now where maybe let's, um, you know, like you, you need to save up some money and get your credit score up. Like let's do the basics first. So I like yeah, the idea yeah. that it's 90 days too, where, um, where there's this time element. Cause the thing is like, you could just read about it or, um, like, I really like hearing your story, how you took a lot of action where being three years in buying a portfolio and, um, managing other people's properties. I mean, that's, that's really awesome. So congrats on, on everything. Thank you. And that's like so. part of the reasoning for writing the book too, is because I, even though when I found bigger pockets, um, like <clears throat> tripled my portfolio because of like, I learned so much more, but also like looking back, I feel like it was so much easier for me to focus. Cause that's all I knew was long-term buying holds. I didn't know about short-term rentals. I didn't know about buying campgrounds. I didn't know about self-storage. I didn't know about any of those other things. So I was so heavily focused on buying long-term rentals that it would just seem so much easier where now today I get a long-term buy and hold rental deal. Well, someone else is throwing other deals at me or someone's talking about this thing and it's like, whoa, okay. Like, and it's very easy to get distracted now. (laughs) Yeah. And then also now you, you own quite a few properties. So now you have like, 
uh, asset yeah, management, the property run management, all. Yeah. construction. <laughs> yeah, that's how that's how I feel some days where I got so much stuff coming at me um, that then it's like you didn't even get to look at any new deals this you know almost week. Like this, it's like tax time we're going to need to do. We don't actually do the returns, but every deal we own, it's a partnership. So, mm-hmm. uh, so an LLC, but a partnership for tax purposes. We have to do like forty tax returns and get everything yeah. together yeah. and uh, coordinate all that. And then some of them we, and some of the deals are pretty complicated where we sold something and then did a uh, sold two buildings, then did a ten thirty one into one, and um, like that's all. Uh, you just kind of get bogged down sometimes. So that's better to just kind of have one thing to focus on, especially when you're starting out what um what sort of deal would you say someone should focus on for their first deal then that i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that i think look at where you have an advantage so do you have a resource or do you already have access to come some kind of strategy so for me i had this other investor long-term buy and hold investor so i had him as a resource as acting as a property manager so i had some experience in that so that was i had a step up from other people because I had that experience and I had that resource. So that made it easier where if that I would have decided, you know what? I want to do short-term rentals. I don't think I knew anyone that owned a short-term rental at that time in my life. I didn't, you know, I knew what Airbnb was. I think I might not have even known what Airbnb was back then, but I just like it look and see if there's some, like if you have a best friend that's maybe doing self storage, like use them as a resource and see how you can help them and learn from them. Like, that's going to give you such an advantage and a leg up. And it may seem like, oh, but that's self-storage so boring. That's not what I'm passionate about. I hate my W-2. I want to get to something that I'm excited about. The reason you're probably actually getting into this business is because you want to quit your W-2 or you want to build wealth. So build the money first, then go after what you're passionate about. So even if it is the boring thing or the thing that isn't excite you, like build that strong foundation then you can be like me and pivot and go buy land and cabins and, you know, spend tons of money to rehab them. So they're beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really great advice. Like just take stock of what, uh, what sort of resources you have and you have to be really resourceful in any sort of thing like this. So that's, that's great advice. Um, yeah, that's, that's perfect. But yeah, anything else you want to touch on or? No, I don't think so. I think that's okay. good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for uh, being on. How do people get in, in touch with you? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at wealth from rentals. And then also you can find my book on the bigger pockets bookstore on Amazon or in Barnes and Noble. Um, that's real estate rookie at 90 days to your first investment. And then also you can listen to the real estate rookie podcast with my co-host Tony Robinson and I, where we interview rookie investors and help people get started in real estate. Awesome. We'll appreciate you being on. Thanks, Ashley. Yeah, thank you so much, Drew. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. 
The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.